Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by Jesse Norman, who, as well as being the MP for Hereford, is the author of a new book on Adam Smith called Adam Smith, What He Thought and Why It Matters. Jesse, welcome. Hello, Sam. Now, Adam Smith is, as you set out in your introduction, you know, the most famous economist who ever lived, pretty much. But most people who cite him seem to know about, you know, two or three things about him. They know something about a pin factory, they know something <laughs> about the invisible hand, yes. and they know that, you know, no collection of businessmen ever met in a room but to plot the restraint of trade. Yes. He has been claimed, as you say, as a sort of patron saint for all sorts of different economic thoughts, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Either patron saint or devil incarnate and kind of stalking horse. No, he's, uh, he is by far the most influential economist um, who ever lived. And in these great citation analyses they do in academia, he's like three or four times more than anyone else in the field, including such luminaries as Marx and Keynes and the like. So he's fantastically influential, but precisely for that reason, he's very heavily contested. And it's the combination of people really either loving him and thinking he's the great laissez-faire economist and the liberator of markets and the enemy of state intervention and, and all that. And then on the other side, of course, you have people who think of him as a great market fundamentalist, a defender of inequality and greed, and an apologist for the rich. So both sides are trying to wrestle for his reputation one way or the other, and both sides have an amazingly inept and partial reading of what he's really thinking and saying. And so what sent you back to the the original now? I mean, you said, you know, why it matters. Your subtitles explicitly our times need Adam Smith. Yes, that's right. Well, I suppose there are two or three things. One is I've been thinking a lot about Smith in the context of the book I'd written about Burke, a few years ago, and I'd always thought of Burke as being the hinge of our political modernity, because you get with Burke, you get a theory of political parties, and you get a theory of representative government, and those are the things that really constitute the kind of fundamentals of democracy, the capacity to change your government after a general election. It's not so much the minutiae of how many people exactly have the vote. In in Britain, as you know, the uh, second university seat wasn't abolished until after the Second World War, and yet we (laughs) think we had democracy before that, and all the all the rest of it. Uh, so it was Burke. But then it occurred to me that Smith actually was, in a, in a parallel way, the hinge of our economic modernity, because what Smith does, which no one else does before him, is to put markets at the centre of political economy, and therefore of what then becomes economics. Uh, and that's the decisive move intellectually for that subject and for our subsequent thought. So when you have those two together, then the question is, well, what, it, what tune can the centre and the centre-right and the centre-left whistle in a world which has become dominated by a sense of disillusionment and a feeling of illegitimacy of markets and growing inequality and all of the concern about the legitimacy of, as it were, democratic market society after 2008. And I think we have to, we have to think these issues again through again from the beginning. And I think Smith is an absolutely invaluable place to start. And if we do start from him, we end up with a completely different view of many of the things we thought we understood. Yes, one of the things that you know, really strikes me about your book of Smith is that we, you know, as you say, the wealth of nations is the great touchstone. It's the book that, that you know, is always quoted and cited. And, you know, people who've read some Smith have always read some of, you say, chapter one and two of the book, one and two of the wealth of nations. And yet your reading has it produces a sort of trifecta of the wealth, wealth of nations and the much earlier book, The um, Theory of, Theory Moral, of Sentiments. Moral Sentiments, and the um, lectures on jurisprudence. Yes. 
And how do these three kind of interrelate? Because I mean, it's interesting that the, the soci- sociology book comes, comes first. Or yes, that, no, that's, comes first. that's absolutely right. So in 1759, Smith writes the, or publishes The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And that's a work, it's actually not a work of, of kind of moral philosophy as such. It's a work of moral psychology. So it asks the question, how do we come to have moral values at all? What are the social processes by which we form political and social and moral norms? And that's an incredibly interesting topic now, of course, because we're thinking all about how norms get incubated online and then suddenly become new ways of believing and thinking for people. And so Smith's got a lot to say about that. Uh, But that also points you to a different reading of Smith. And of course, one of the standard problems with Smith has been that people think there was this book about morals and there was this book, The Wealth of Nations, and that's about economics and the one is about altruism and the other is about self-interest and how can anyone combine the same things and maybe actually had a complete crisis of faith and changed his mind and somehow the whole thing is incoherent. And of course that's exactly wrong. Smith is thinking about one thing from the very beginning and that's a question of the general issue of how people behave in relation to each other and he has a theory of how they behave morally and how moral norms arise out of individuals desire to earn the esteem be what he says to be to love and to be lovely to be worthy of love uh, in other people's eyes and that's where you get moral norms and values from but he also has a theory of markets and of course markets are not the disembodied mathematical constructs of current economics they are institutions and therefore they are precisely embedded in culture trust norms and all the things that the first book talks about about. So you get those two works coming into a more coherent relation to each other in a way that rather refutes contemporary economic theorizing of human beings as homo economicus, if you like, yes. um, operating according to pure self-interest. And then the lectures on jurisprudence drop in as this missing link. They, you know, Smith never published them. They were a Samizdat student notes that we've recreated. It's because uh, a lot of his papers were burnt, weren't they? Well, he insisted that yeah. um, 18 folios of his papers be burnt, including works that, you know, we can only marvel at the, and despair at the loss about works about uh, culture and about politics. Uh, and the, the lecture on jurisprudence is the closest we get. But what they give us is a theory of politics sitting between the political economy and the moral sentiments. And what's so fascinating about that is you, the whole thing amounts to a dynamic and evolving conception of how not just markets and individuals in their personal dealings, but the state evolved together. And it's a kind of pre-Darwinian idea, very much more dynamic than people think, and much more kind of expansively original. And what's so fascinating about it is that, of course, when you think in that way, then most interesting thinking now of economics about the way in which markets dynamically interact with each other or the way in which norms shape human behaviour actually has its anticipation in Smith himself. Yes, I mean, it feels a bit like some of your, some of your project here, as you set out, you know, Milt Friedman gets a good slapping early on for, you know, very selectively quoting yes. Smith, that you're, you're sort of, in some ways, trying to save Smith from neoliberalism or from his claim for what's... Yes, I, certain, I certainly am trying to rescue a, a historically accurate understanding of Smith because I think it acts as a corrective both to the left and those kinds of readings of Smith as a kind of apologist for greed and uh, inequality. The opposite, in fact, the exact opposite is true. Smith is very much an enemy of inequality and he has a marvellous denunciation of slavery in the th- lectures on jurisprudence and in the Wealth of Nations. And of course, and in parts of the first work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and that he despises because not just on moral grounds, but economic grounds. But he's also someone who is able to talk coherently about all of the issues that anticipate our current thinking in things like behavioural economics and the like. 
Yes, he has quite a sort of sunny disposition. I mean, one of the things that comes through your book is the sort of warmth of his character, that mm. this, you know, I suppose what's been appropriated by a very mathematical, you know, view of political economy of laissez-faire as, you know, individuals, you know, making their own way. He seems to be much more saying, if left more or less to themselves, human beings behave in this way that's not sort of transactional in a kind of necessarily sort of greedy or self-seeking way, but they, they form these bonds, they form societies, yes. and they can be allowed. So the, so the sort of small state part of it, in a way, seems to be, you know, let people get on with it. Well, he is, he, is, he is personally warm, and his outlook is broadly optimistic. But he's not a utopian by any means. I mean, the core idea is that of exchange. So we get our moral values by exchange of regard or esteem. We get our market transactions through exchange in marketplaces. And of course, we form ideas by exchanging rhetorically and communicatively with each other. Yes, his first uh, first work is, is on rhetoric. That's right. So it's a kind of unified theory of human interaction in that sense. But what's really interesting about it is that he's perfectly aware the system can go wrong. I mean, you can have markets that don't work, like the slave market, which never should exist in the first place. Or you can have markets which get stuck in secular stagnation of a kind that um, is very anticipatory of Keynes. And you can see, so, and he has more than one theory of markets. So he has, he has a, he talks about what, what sometimes referred to these days as Veblen goods, where the demand goes up as the price goes up. You know, oh, yeah, like yes, luxury yeah. goods. And, and he's very rude about materialism. I mean, what does he talk about? He talks about man's fixation on trinkets of frivolous utility. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a phrase he likes so much he repeats it. I mean, it appears more often, I think, or at least as often as the phrase invisible hand. We don't think of it as having a theory of trinkets of frivolous <laughs> utility. Okay. Now, when you talk about exchange, one of the fascinating things about you, you put him in his historical context and the exchange with those around him his intellectual peers, his intellectual forerunners. I mean, the the great and most obvious one we should come to first is Hume, who, you know, was an older man, but, you know, I think he's, he's only two people he describes as the never-to-be-forgotten. Yes, um, that's right, that's right, alongside uh, Smith's teacher, Francis Hutcheson. What did um, he get from Hume? So what he gets from Hume, it's rather like that J.L. Austin, you know, what's your, you know, what, what is this really, what's it about roughly everything? And, and so, no, he, what he gets from Hume, and first of all, Hume is an incredible character, it's marvellously kind of funny and clever and languid and amused in an incredibly endearing way. As, you know, there are many, whenever I worry about the narrative may just be in danger of flagging, I drop a bit of Hume in because he's so funny. He is just a lovely, <laughs> lovely bit about his... Um, when he's asked to write another book, yes. I can't, I'm too old and too lazy and too rich. That's right. So, so Strawn writes to him, his, his London publisher, Strawn, says, will you write a seventh volume of your best-selling history of England? And he says, no. He says, I will not write again. I says, I'm too fat, too lazy. And so he, says, he, says, um, he says, I'm too old, too fat, too lazy, and too rich. And of course... I, you know, um, everyone who reads that says, who's a writer, says, gosh, I wish I could say that to my publisher. Exactly. You know, that marvellous feeling. So Hume is incredibly funny. If there was a best supporting actor for this book, it would be played by David Hume. But he's also an absolutely towering philosophical genius. And what Hume does is to pick up this great enlightenment project, the idea of a science of man. You can have a, a, a general theory of human interaction and behaviour in, in all its manifestations and then link that with the exact sciences in a, in a single body of thought inspired 
inspired, of course, as everyone was inspired, by the example of Isaac Newton and the way he had kind of unified cosmology and physics and astronomy. So that's the project. And Hume's first brilliant first work, Treatise of Human Nature, sets out that ambition. And I don't think, I mean, there are, just, there are scholarly arguments about this, and the suggestion has been made that Hume kind of backs off that ambition as he gets older. I'm not sure he does. I mean, Hume tries being acclaimed as a philosopher and writes probably the greatest or one of the two or three greatest works in English language philosophy ever written. That doesn't quite hit the button with the public as he would like. So then he writes some essays. They hit the button quite a lot more. And then he writes his history, which absolutely is a runaway bestseller. And he's able to buy a large house on St. Andrew's Square and retire to the new town in, in Edinburgh. So that all goes very well. But, but he gives Smith that philosophical project. And it's out of that philosophical project that you get the moral psychology and the jurisprudence and the theory of, of markets and economics. I was idea of what you call the science of man. And you also, Hutchison was the other... Yes. Yes, well, Hutchison, Hutchison was a huge example to Smith for two reasons. One is because of his personal example. So Hutchison was an Ulsterman. He was a, he was a reform theologian who'd come to, come to Glasgow, and he very much set about reforming the way in which Glasgow, which was one of the great universities of the day, and in many ways still is, of course, at a time when Scotland had five universities and England had two or two and a half, if you include the Inns of Court. And so, uh, and Glasgow was very much in the the 18th century spirit of improvement about improving itself. And so they bring in Hutchison, and Hutchison's personal example is tremendous because he's a very charismatic lecturer and he insists on lecturing in English and he does it in a much more free-form and confident way, and that's very inspiring and very exciting to students. But Hutchison also gives an example that Smith wants to steer away from because although Hutchison has many of the same instincts about the way in which, as it were, a theory of human interaction should develop, he he anchors it in a moral sense. And the idea of a moral sense is that it's, it's like one of the five senses, only it's a sense that, as it were, allows you to make moral judgments. And Smith thinks that's incoherent. And so, so he's producing it as a given, as a sort of our priori. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and also something that kind of links to a divine, as it were, sure. origin. And Smith's whole theory is designed to give you a theory of uh, a wider picture of human action that does not rely on a religious premise at all. And that's not to say Smith isn't actually in many ways, of a rather religious disposition. In some ways, he is. But, and indeed, so is Hume, who's often regarded as the great atheist, bizarrely. Yes, he kept getting turned up. Well, Smith, I mean, yeah. Hume, Hume, I mean, Hume isn't, isn't at all religious in his disposition particularly, but if he was prepared to sign the Confession of Faith uh, in the event that Edinburgh had offered him or Glasgow had offered him a job, of course, neither university had the wit to give the greatest philosopher of, <laughs> one of the two or three greatest philosophers of this or any age, a job. But then, of course, it's in the nature of genius that it goes unappreciated in its yes. own lifetime. So that's not so surprising in a way. It's the taste by which it's to be appreciated. Yes. Is one of the kind of characteristics of Smith that, that sort of pragmatism in a way that he tries to produce an account? I mean, it's very interesting when you're talking about his, the way there's a kind of continuum between his theory of human beings as a sort of scientific, mm. quasi-scientific way of arriving at, and yes. his interest in sort of physics and the, you know, the new enlightenment yes. theories of the, of the material world, that both of them are sort of heuristic things that he... He says, you know, we don't have to be able to get back to first causes and prove a first cause. We simply say, this is, you know, observe this is how it works. Yes, yes. They are, in that sense, a very, it's a very naturalistic view. That's absolutely right. And, and it's a view that, in that sense, owes, although also disagrees with quite a lot, to 
Francis Bacon and this this kind of mania for assembling examples of things and trying to build a scientific theory up from by taxonomy, if you like, that he inspires in the 17th century. So that's absolutely right. And what it gives Smith is a is a marvelous interest in the detail, which is such a corrective to the more abstract modeling side. So you get uh, the in in the Wealth of Nations the pin factory and uh, as it were the theory of um, the division of labour and accounts of how markets work but it's always in the context of specific markets so he'll talk about the corn market or the labour market or the herring market or you know what happens with colonial search for silver I mean or slavery I mean those are concrete examples and so he's a tremendous corrective in this anti-utopian spirit to the idea that somehow we can have one completely generic theory of markets and then leave it at that. What Smith's always wanting to say is, well, how does this actually work, and what's it really doing, and what's its purpose? And he does anchor it in this public idea that a market doesn't exist by divine fiat, but exists to serve a public good. I mean, do you think this, in some ways, is where such, you know, modern economics has gone wrong a bit, and that what you've called, and you, you know, it's a sort of touchstone for the book, that's not a phrase of Smith, this science of humanity, has become detached from the the way we view economics, the sort of mathematical modelling. Yes, I mean, I think there was a danger of that a few years ago. I think an awful lot of the best new economists over the last 10 or 15 years understand that problem and are trying to bring the subject back much more to what I call it. Well, a little bit on that. I think, I mean, that's one aspect of it. And of course, Vernon Smith, who is a great experimental economist and who got the Nobel Prize with uh, Danny Kahneman, was a sim- in a similar spirit. But actually, there's much wider reorientation going on towards what you might call political economy, towards thinking about political institutions in that wider sense. And Smith has this marvellous point, which is, he says, look, uh, property and the forms of government evolve with each other. Forms of property and government evolve with each other. And in other words, the state is always implicitly involved, not just in specifying property rights in their outline, but in specific specific property rights. And therefore, you can never have an economics that's de- detached from politics. There is just political economy. And if you pretend that economics or the economy is an insulated kind of bubble away for the rest of um, society or the rest of human deliberation, you are going to end up with making mistakes. And I think an awful lot of that is feeding back into economics now. And we're starting to think, see people thinking much more about how people actually behave and how they dynamically interact. There are intractable problems. I mean, the, 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 one of the biggest problems in economics at the moment is that there's no ability to capture, or people really struggle to capture, preferences. And preferences are taken to be, as it were, core components of individual action because they determine what people consume or don't consume. But of course, we have no theory of how they evolve in one person's own life over time or how they involve in in response to other people. And the math is just too difficult. And that keeps a lot of economists away from thinking about it. But I think they're now starting to understand that and really engage with it. It's an incredibly interesting time. Adam Smith himself, what was he like? There's a dispiriting confession in a book where you say, well, the thing is, as a biographer, you know, his his life essentially is, I think you use the phrase, a featureless Sahara when yes. it comes to you know, interesting gossip or you know, personal <laughs> colour. That is true. I, when it comes to matters of the heart, yes. um, um, Smith's life is a featureless Sahara. Yes, I'm afraid it is. And 
I mean, luckily, I hope that means, and, and the feedback has been so far that it doesn't mean that it means that we can still have an interesting book, because luckily the times that they're living in is incredible, incredibly interesting, and Smith's other thinking is incredibly interesting. And when you, when you've got you know the Jacobites um, rebelling all over the place, and the Seven Years' War, and the colonial troubles that begin in uh, the 1760s in America, and and then ultimately the build up to the French Revolution, you're living in fascinating times. You're also, the sense that. There aren't so many people knocking about. I'm always surprised when, you know, I read a book that's set, you know, two or three hundred years ago by the fact that they all seem to bump into each other. So you've got this detail of, you know, Adam Smith reviewing the first edition of Dr. Johnson's Dictionary and yes. you know, giving it a mild kicking. And yes, it does. Right. <laughs> For which Johnson never forgave him and they, yeah. were, they, were, they were never friends. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, and it is an incredibly small world. And, and, and Burke, as it appears, anonymously reviewing both of Smith's books in the annual register. And of course, they're all members of Dr. Johnson's club. And when Burke joins as the third member alongside Johnson and uh, Joshua Reynolds, to keep the kind of the old man's despair at bay. That's all fine. That goes very well. And then they start expanding the size of the club in the 1770s, including people like Adam Smith. And Dr. Johnson stops going because it just loses its charm and energy for him and becomes a bit too serious. And so and so you do see that. But, I mean, there's an incredible array. And as you say, they all know each other. And in the same is true in Scotland, which is an even smaller world. You know, so the great figures, you know, Ferguson, Black, Hutton, Hume, Cames, uh, Smith, Blair, they all know each other incredibly well. They're all interacting with each other. And it's so interesting to look at the way in which the Scottish Enlightenment, with its emphasis on kind of improvement, national and self-improvement, you know, interacts with the kind of what's happening in England and the different revolutions that yes, Johnson that, is launching, or David Garrick. Yes, I mean, in the wilderness years, as you put you, you, you know, he goes down to Balliol yes. and finds it this complete, you know, intellectual desert. Sits there and simply reads some literature and practices Well, it's, it's, it's a, it, I mean, if you're, I mean, Smith, like Burke, is a fantastic autodidact. And, and Burke didn't particularly like the way they taught him at uh, Trinity College Dublin. They know what admits that now. And Smith absolutely hated Balliol, which was, um, you know, wildly Jacobite and high Tory and uh, anti um, Scots and um, also very expensive and since since Smith was a Whiggish Presbyterian of limited means and a Scot he found that rather difficult to take but so he, had, he did have an incredible range of reference I mean he obviously you know it didn't slow him up in in what he took in I mean this was a man really very much in the round wasn't he I mean he, he read a fantastic amount and he yes. quoted so freely I mean yes. you, know, it, you know the early stuff on rhetoric and belles you know as you say, he's absolutely... He said, I'm not putting in grammar, but I'm just salting it with these fantastic quotations. Yes. No, that is right. He has a fantastically wide range of reference. He's an uh, omnivorous reader. I mean, we have the details of his library, which is a very wide-ranging one. Uh, and, of course, very interestingly, he's absolutely prepared to get stuck into the grisly detail of you know, how much of this is being sold for what price in which particular year. And people forget the 18th century is a time when people are really starting to think hard about writing things down, cataloguing, capturing. You know, the work of William Petty and people like that earlier on had set the scene for a kind of explosion in thinking about the economic effects of action. And there's an incredible amount of legislation passed in the 18th century. And one of the reasons why I think people misread Smith is because his liberalising tendency is almost certain to lead in the context to greater well-being and greater equality because markets at that time are thickets of church, guild and state regulation in many cases. Now you get a situation... So the institutional... And so just removing all of that, removing a lot of that kind of undergrowth just is bound to create greater well-being uh, and uh, value and economic value. And so the interesting thing is to look at 
as it were, how would Smith feel now? And I th- and the case I make is that, of course, the Smith has a diagnosis of crony capitalism in the wealth of nations, and it's one that we can apply directly now. And you can't assume now that if you liberalise the market, it will lead to greater well-being. Of course, one has an instinct for liberal treatment, rightly so, and that's what Smith tells us in areas of free trade and, and domestic trade as well. But you can't rely on it, and there are many markets in which the insiders are progressively more able to rip off the outsiders because of technology. And so the state, in a funny way, is the ultimate guarantor of the legitimacy of the system, has no option but to take an interest in some of these things if it can see people being ripped off. Yes, there's a quote somewhere where, I don't think it's Smith's line, but you, you said, applies very well, Smith, and it's the seed of it, that all you need for a society to become to go from being very backward to being you know, prosperous and happy is a sort of three things. And I, I think the third one is the law tolerably administered, isn't it? It's yes, a, yes. Um, it's not a kind of total laissez-faire. No, no. Um, I mean, you know, easy taxes and, and the like. And, easy taxes, that's like. it, easy taxes. Yes, so so that, that is, that's Smith from the 1750s. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating is the extent to which the seeds of the wealth of nations, 1776, is contained in thinking he's doing in the 1750s. And there's one point at which he worries that some of his ideas are being ripped off by others and he insists on giving, you know, a talk of which we have an account in direct account, which is basically saying, by the way, guys, this is my area and back off. And these are my <laughs> ideas. And I'm just laying a little early claim to them. And um, he could be a little prickly about his personal reputation. And his he regarded a personal reputation as part of a person's private property. And so he's, you know, he can be some, slightly indignant about defending it from time to time. Not quite right, too. Now, you said, you know, Smith's of great application. Now, I'm just wondering, you know, when Smith came of age, it was not very long after the Act of Union. And he was seeing, you know, lived through this great period in which you know, free trade with England helped to kind of raise Scotland up and yes. produce the seeds of Scottish Enlightenment. You know, what would he have made of Brexit, do you think? Well, it's a fascinating question. Let's talk about the Union for a second first, because it's such an interesting moment. So the Union, it was 1707, is, is described by Smith after the event. Obviously, he's born in 1723. When he looks back at it several decades later, he says the Union was a measure from which infinite good has been derived to this country. It is absolutely agreed across all the central thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment that the Union was a fantastic boon which had transformed Scotland economically from being a very backward society, famines in the 17, in the 1690s, to being the Asian tiger of the late 18th and, and 19th century. And it was also a common ground amongst them that this had triggered a an astonishing change in society, where it had moved from semi-feudalism into what Smith calls commercial society, in which human beings, uh, every man is in himself a merchant and, as it were, lives by exchanging. So that's the idea. And that's, broadly speaking, the kind of society we live in now. And Commercial society is an absolute core idea for the book. Commercial society and not capitalism, interestingly enough. Capitalism, doesn't, we don't get that till the 19th century. So, so Smith absolutely feels that, and it's a standing rebuff to anyone of a Scottish nationalist temperament these days that they should realise that the foundational thinkers of that nation's modern incarnation were all unionists, rightly so, in part because it preserved and enhanced Scottish nationhood. That was the thing that was so interesting about it. So when we come to Brexit, of course, it's a parlour game to ask how, how Smith... Of course you know, it is. Would, we know, yeah. Was Smith a fan of Beyoncé? Who knows? We're not about paying parlour games. <laughs> no, we know he was a fan this of Beyoncé. spectator, exactly. One can, one can freely speculate. No, so, so there is a fascinating moment in 1778 where Smith has asked for his opinion whether the colonial war is going terribly badly and it's all escalating out of control and the English are a bit nervous about everything. And uh, he's asked for his advice and he writes a long memo in which he canvasses some of the alternative potential policy approaches. And he settles on by saying, uh, overall, that his recommendation is that the colonists should be given representation in the British Parliament. 
although he says this will inevitably mean that sovereignty passes to the colonies over time as they expand and we don't. And I think that perfectly captures some of the worries that sit behind kind of current contemporary concerns about Brexit. Yes, so his anxiety was that what eventually... How's the Parliament moved to New York? Well, or, or exactly. I mean, it was inevitable. I mean, when you have a society that's growing so much faster as theirs is, and which has this potentially limitless expanse of exploitable land and energy, Smith is really, he's still a slightly pre-industrial figure. So he's got a, he understands the importance of industry and the specialisation and, of course, the vision of labour. But he also thinks of the colonies, of the American colonies, as basically agriculture value added and it takes Hamilton's astonishing genius in reading Smith and thinking about him to see the seeds of a modern industrial society in Smith applied to his own to his own country yes well then Adam Smith the musical has to be next yes (laughs) Paul you could write the book a frightening thought sadly his love life not quite as interesting (laughs) as Alexander Hamilton's alas Jesse Norman thank you very much indeed thank you You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.